in early April 1471, two large armies faced each other in the Midlands. Edward IV, attempting to retake his throne, was camped at Warwick, and he was opposed in Coventry by the man who had once been his staunch ally, Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick. The Earl had thrown in his lot, and it must have been the very last lot in his pocket, with the Lancastrian Queen Margaret, who had not yet reached England. Since neither force could dislodge the other, Edward and Warwick were locked in a stalemate. But it was a stalemate which could not last long, for simply feeding so many men in such a small area was a tall order. They could not sit there indefinitely. So Edward took a gamble and marched to London. London offered him men, money, resources and legitimacy for it was the seat of government. It also offered possession of Henry VI. Such was the speed of Edward's advance that Warwick had no chance of catching him before he reached the capital. Warwick ordered the city of London to hold out until he arrived, while Edward told them to secure Henry VI and await his arrival. Interestingly, the most prominent Lancastrian in London, Edmund Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, decided to leave the capital before either Warwick or Edward arrived. Why? Because he had received news that Margaret of Anjou and her son had finally sailed from France and were expected to arrive shortly on the south coast. It is an interesting indicator of Lancastrian priorities. Margaret was far more important to him than Warwick. If Somerset had remained, perhaps things would have been different, but probably not, because Edward was advancing upon the city with a large army which London could not oppose. The city welcomed him in, and the only leading member of the new regime left there, George Neville, Warwick's brother, could do nothing but submit, as did several other Lancastrians. Edward had a brief and amiable chat with Henry VI, who seemed genuinely pleased to see him. And then he got on with the business of organising his forces to stop Warwick. He hurried to Westminster, not only to greet his wife and new son, Edward, yes, another Edward, I'm afraid, but also to be crowned king again. It's difficult not to admire Edward's progress from Ravenspur to London. No one could have predicted how it came about, but the key was holding his nerve and that was one of the man's greatest attributes. But so far, nothing had been won. The enemy was still there, and with the imminent threat of Queen Margaret's arrival, Warwick's army would only get stronger. Edward could not let the two forces join, so he must defeat Warwick swiftly. As it was, in a matter of days, Warwick would be at the city gates, and Edward, being Edward, chose to ride out of London and meet him head-on in the field. Warwick was heading south from St Albans, when on the afternoon of the 13th of April, Easter Saturday, 1471, Edward set out from London, with his army bolstered by new recruits, and amounting to perhaps 10,000 men. All the sources agree that Warwick's army was larger, so the outcome was by no means certain, 
and the odds did not favour the newly recrowned king. With him, Edward had the usual suspects, his two brothers, George and Richard, his brother-in-law, Earl Rivers, and Lord Hastings. But he also had the old king, Henry VI, because possession of the king was everything, so Edward could not just leave him behind in London. Not only was Warwick's army larger, but he also had far more cannon than Edward and possessed two of the most reliable military commanders in England, his brother John Neville and the Earl of Oxford, John de Vere. It was thus going to take something rather special to defeat Warwick, and that's one way of describing the battle that followed. As was often the case with Edward, once he started moving an army, he did not stop until he was where he wanted to be, close to the enemy. In this case, his vanguard encountered Warwick's patrols at Barnet on the Great North Road and drove them north through the town. There is some conjecture now about exactly where the battle was fought, including a suggestion that it was a little further north than has previously been thought. However, having walked the traditional site myself, I think it still makes a degree of sense. In any case, Edward pushed through Barnet and reached Warwick's main force under cover of darkness. And that's where the fun began. In the dark, Edward was able, by moving his men quietly, to get quite close to the enemy line. However, precisely because it was dark, they actually got much closer than they ever intended. Not only that, but they contrived, since they could not see where they were, to set their battle line so that it was not exactly opposite Warwick's. Thus, Edward's right wing ended up extending well beyond Warwick's left flank, which it faced. And of course, at the other end, Edward's left flank was similarly overlapped by Warwick's right. In the night, all were blissfully unaware of this rather important development. As soon as Warwick realised that Edward's army was within reach, he used the night hours to bombard the Yorkists with ferocious artillery fire, albeit they were firing blind. Edward had expected the barrage, and because he had positioned his army so very close to Warwick's line, most of it went over the heads of his men. They were under orders not to fire back, lest they should give away their close proximity to the enemy. One can only imagine the atmosphere on Easter Sunday morning, with the two battle lines littered with debris and screened by smoke from the cannons. Then, before dawn, a thick fog descended upon them all. Edward planned a very early morning attack, which started with a brief salvo of fire by his archers and hand gunners, firing blind like Warwick's gunners during the night. Then Edward's men advanced on foot, as was the way in this period, and launched their attack. If ever one wanted a classic example of the phrase the fog of war, then the Battle of Barnet provides it. The first point to make is that no one fighting on that field had the slightest idea what was happening elsewhere on the field. None at all. If one section of the battle line was advancing, their comrades quite close by had no inkling of it. There was so much noise 
shouting, possibly sporadic gun or cannon fire, not to mention the metallic clash of arms. You might hear some shouts of triumph, but you had no idea whose shouts they were. All you could do in that situation was try to kill whoever was in front of you, and obviously try to avoid getting killed. Normally on a battlefield, if one flank of an army was seen to be hopelessly overrun, then most likely the whole army would be turned and routed. But the key word there is seen. Because of the original misalignment of the two armies, when Warwick's right flank, commanded by the Earl of Oxford, advanced, there was no one in front of them. Eventually they swung round and found Edward's left flank at a tangent, driving them back with heavy losses. So great was their impact that some of Edward's men fled into Barnet and others even as far as London itself, carrying news of Warwick's victory with them. Oxford's men pursued the fleeing Yorkists into Barnet, where many then decided there were better things to do than return to a battle that was already won. Oxford's total rout of Edward's left flank should have been decisive, except no one else saw it. The rest kept on fighting as if it had not happened. And of course, just as Oxford's men had overlapped on one end of the battle line, so Edward's overlapped on the other, and his right flank drove back Warwick's left onto his centre. Even in a fog, King Edward must have been a formidable opponent, taller than most men, armed with a couple of pole axes and with the best quality armour available, he pounded into his enemies and drove them back. After several hours of brutal, bloody, hand-to-hand fighting with mace, pole axe and sword, the battle was won. The two Neville brothers, Richard and John, who had played such a prominent role in English history, were both dead, along with perhaps at least a thousand more on each side. Edward had defeated the greatest challenge yet to his grip upon the English throne. He had defeated his old friend and ally, Warwick, against the odds, in possibly one of the most bizarre battles in English history. He could now return to London in triumph, except that only a few hours after his victory on Easter Sunday, Queen Margaret and her son Prince Edward landed at Weymouth in Dorset. In a day or two, Edward IV would receive word of her landing, just as she would learn of the crushing defeat and death of the Earl of Warwick and the destruction of his army. What would she have thought? I imagine that she shed few tears over the Earl's death. Indeed, she may have thought, as her Lancastrian advisers told her, that she was better off without Warwick. Nevertheless, she did not have her husband, Henry VI, either, in whose name she was supposed to be fighting. And in any case, how easy would it be to raise another whole army so quickly? Surely there would be no more volunteers for another round of slaughter, would there? <laughs>